first passage we're going to read together comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's actually two parts to this. So please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, reading from verse 1. Now I, re- now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised." For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We're going to skip down now to verse 50. Same chapter, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold... I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the imperishable puts on the imperishable, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now please turn with me as we go to read a passage in John. It's John chapter 10, and we're going to read from verse 14. John chapter 10, verse 14. This is the words of Jesus. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, 
just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. And this is the word of God. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that you are our good Father. Thank you that through your Son, we are reconciled to you, that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, that, our, that you, we no longer face your wrath and anger. But we thank you too that in the resurrection of your Son, we are guaranteed that payment of sin, and then we are guaranteed reconciliation with you. There are many things that flow out of the resurrection of your Son. So today, Father, we pray that you'd help us start at the beginning. Help us to believe it. And then we ask, Father, that you'll help our lives to experience the resurrection. To know, not, to know it not just only as an historical event, but that which really shapes our life, for it brings us into relationship with you. So, Father, help us to grasp these truths today. Fill our hearts again with awe and wonder as we begin to think through how to shape our life around the resurrected Jesus. So, Father, bless our time here. Help us by your spirit understand your word. Help me to speak clearly. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As most of you know by now, I am a big Marvel Cinematic Universe fan. And recently, one of their series had a Christmas special. Uh, it's a fun, quirky, short movie, and it had one moment in it, though, which I think captures the view of our world at the moment so perfectly. So we've got two characters. We've got Mantis and Drax. They journey from space to Earth at Christmas time. And as they're walking around and enjoying the Christmas decorations and the sights and the sounds, they stumble across a nativity scene. You've got the stable, you've got the, you're Mary and Joseph and the little baby Jesus, but he doesn't have his arms out like that. Right. So they're staring at the baby Jesus and they're completely confused. They have no idea what to do with him. What is this? Now, if that doesn't capture the spirit of our age at the moment, I don't know what does. Right, Christmas decorations are up in the stores, carols are playing over the shop speakers, and if you ask the shoppers what Christmas is all about, they'd probably tell you that it's about family and spending time and resting and relaxing. But if you ask them about Jesus, I wonder how often you'd get the stares like Mantis and Drax at, uh, in utter bewilderment. Like, what would they do with him? Now, for Christians even, let me ask the same question. What do you do with the baby Jesus? What hope is brought up as you look upon him? See, over the past few weeks, we've been reminded that the baby was God incarnate, fully human and fully divine. Born in this way, he knows us perfectly. He knows our temptations and weaknesses personally. Last week, we were reminded that Jesus was born to die. He was born to be our substitute, to take God's wrath on our behalf and reconcile us to God. 
But then does it end there? Well, we know it doesn't, and we know that Jesus didn't remain in the tomb. He was raised to life. But what do we do with the resurrection? Now, perhaps instead of a baby in the manger, we look like Mantis and Drax when it comes to the empty tomb. Is the resurrection there just for something to believe in, something that we just check off on our list of beliefs? Well, today I want us to look at the resurrection. We're going to be tackling it. First, we want to see that the resurrection is something we need to know and believe. Right? It is something that happened in history. It was a real historical event that we need to embrace, that we need to believe in, and there are strong arguments for the truth of the resurrection. But secondly, we'll see that we need to have an experience of the resurrection. To know the res- resurrection is true is a good start, but it won't do us any good if we aren't experiencing its power to change our lives, if we aren't experiencing the relationship that it brings us into with our Heavenly Father. That's where we're headed today. So in this first section, I want to briefly touch on this point that Jesus died and that he was seen alive again. So Paul, as we read out in 1 Corinthians 15, wants to convince his readers that Jesus really did die, that he really was buried, and he really was seen alive on the third day onwards. And so he begins in chapter, three, uh, chapter 15, verse 3 to 4, with a simple point, Jesus really died and was buried. So read it with me again, uh, chapter 15, verse 3 to 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried. Now here, this is crucial to the Gospel, Jesus was the baby in a manger that we celebrate at this time of year. He was born and he came ultimately to fulfill the scriptures. He came to take what God promised in the Old Testament and answer those promises. And part of what God promised in the Old Testament was that God would deal with the problem of sin and death. He would deal with this issue that keeps looming large in the life of his people and in the world. And how would he do it? Well, he would send the right person for the problem. You see, if you have the wrong solution, then you're going to end up in a worse way. So just imagine for a moment that you have a plumbing issue at home, right? Who do you call? You don't call a carpenter, right? You don't call a window maker. You call a plumber. So imagine you have a leaking pipe and you you call a plumber, but you you feel like the cost is really expensive because plumbers just charge through the roof for their services. And so you decide maybe a local handyman can do the job for half the price. You pay, he comes out, it seems okay, but then after a few days, the leak becomes worse and the water then leaks into your walls and it damages everything and termites get attracted to the water. You need to have the right person for the job Otherwise, the problem will not be fixed. What is it that humanity needs? What we need isn't to be taught to do better. So God didn't just send us a teacher. What we need isn't just physical or psychological help. So God didn't send us a doctor or a counsellor. What we need is for our hearts to be changed that the inward bent in my heart that keeps, uh, that keeps bending towards rebelling against God, we need that to be changed. And we have a looming shadow of death 
that threatens to consistently rob us of meaning and significance in life. See, if all we do in this life is taken away by death, then really everything in this life is meaningless. There's no reason or motivation to live a virtuous good life. We need that shadow to be taken away. This is what God promises to do in the Old Testament. And when Jesus comes, he comes, as Paul says twice in the opening verses, in accordance with the scriptures. Right? That's Paul's way of saying that God is keeping his words when he sends Jesus. Jesus is not a teacher, not a doctor, not just a mental health counselor. He is a savior. He is a substitute. And so the first point that Paul makes in verse 3 is that Jesus died for our sins and he was buried. He did it as our substitute. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at how Jesus was the creator of all things and how he was born into this world as a full human, yet also retaining his full divinity, and how he really died on a cross in our place. He died, as last week we learned, a propitiation, a sacrifice that would turn away God's wrath and anger. But he didn't just stay dead. So look in the second half of verse 4 onwards. Paul makes a big claim that Jesus was raised on the third day, again, in accordance with the scriptures. Now, that's a big claim. It's a claim that the tomb that Jesus was buried in was found empty. Each of the gospel writers points or finishes or rounds off their gospel with an empty tomb. That on that Sunday, after his burial on Friday, Jesus was seen alive. Or seen by who? Have a look at verse 5 to 7. Verse 5 to 7 starts detailing who saw Jesus. He was seen by uh, Cephas, otherwise known as Peter, uh, and then the other disciples. And then astonishingly in verse 6, he appeared to 500 people at one time. And then Paul makes this very interesting statement. Read it again with me at the end of verse 6, right? Just right there at the end of verse 6. Most of them, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, why does he say that? Why does he say that? He's saying that because the Corinthian church he's speaking to was a bit skeptical about the resurrection. They weren't sure it was true. And so Paul says here, hey, Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. They, they weren't seeing some sort of vision or hallucinating. Go ask them yourself if you want to. Some of them are still around. They'll tell you what they, they saw. Reliable eyewitness testimony is hard to dispute. I had a friend who got into a bit of a car accident. She was driving along and she got bumped uh, on that kind of rear corner and that made her car just spin around a couple of times. Now, obviously in the days of the moment, she couldn't catch the license plate, right? And she, she didn't do that. She just saw the color of the car. But the guy actually took off on her, didn't bother to stop, didn't bother to stop to check how she was. He just drove away quick smart. But a fellow driver took down the license plate of that guy, gave testimony to the police, and the police were able to track down the person and deal with the accident. Reliable eyewitness testimony can be hard to dispute. And so these 500 people that Paul is pointing to, he's saying they are a reliable source for knowing that Jesus was alive. Jesus didn't appear to people who were ready to believe it. Some, like the Apostle Thomas, were highly skeptical. They, he wanted hard evidence of the resurrection before he would believe, and eventually he got it. How do we know that Jesus was seen alive? 
It wasn't just a small group of people who claimed it. There was a big bunch of eyewitnesses who could back up the story. Now, eyewitness testimony is only one proof of the resurrection. Another proof for the resurrection is the changed lives of the apostles and of Paul himself. Right? That's what he highlights in verses 8 to 11, that Jesus appeared to Paul and radically changed his life. So have a look at from verse 8. Last of all, after appearing to uh, the disciples in the 500, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. He was, in verse 9, a persecutor of the church, a gleeful persecutor. He gladly watched as Stephen was brutally and violently stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. He murderously went from village to village to try and capture Christians and bring them to execution. But then he met Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. You can read that story in Acts chapter 9, that on the road to Damascus to arrest more Christians, he was blinded by Jesus. And after a few days his later, his sight was restored with the help of some Christians. That moment led to a radical change, a change so phenomenal, so unbelievable that the apostles at first didn't believe it. Could the cold-blooded persecutor Paul have really changed? But he did. The resurrected Jesus is the only thing that makes sense of his radical change. And that change didn't just hit Paul, but it hit all the apostles. Remember, the Gospels paint the disciples in quite a negative light. When Jesus was arrested, tried and crucified, the disciples responded with fear and cowardice. They were afraid and they scattered so that no one could find them. And yet, only a few weeks later, they were in full reverse. They were united in their message. They were brave and bold in their preaching. Most of them would even die for their message. And they went to their graves proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, some people have accused the disciples of making the whole thing up, right? But here's the thing. You don't willingly die for a lie. You might die for something you know is, you might die for something that isn't true, but you don't die for something you know for sure is a lie. In 1972, Charles Colson was one of the chief political advisors to US Republican President Richard Nixon. During an upcoming election, they wanted to spy on the Democratic Party, and so they broke into their headquarters at the Watergate compound, took photos of various documents, and planted bugs in their phones. It was known as the Watergate scandal. They eventually, all of the people involved eventually got caught. Charles Colson was one of the men involved in the planning of this spy operation. And when it was all exposed, not only did Richard Nixon resign, but Charles Colson was put in prison. In prison, he converted. He began a prison ministry called Prison Fellowship Ministry, which is global, uh, actively global, uh, global actively, actively global, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so he started a ministry called Prison Fellowship. He became a leading and influential evangelical leader in the United States. And his turnaround was utterly dramatic. 
What explains that turnaround? It was the impossibility of the resurrection story being a lie. Here's what Charles said. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Now, one man, one man can give up their life for what they know is a lie, but 12 men keeping that lie up together at the cost of their lives? Absolutely impossible. Only the actual resurrection of Jesus can explain the huge change in the disciples' lives and that it would go to their deaths willingly for the gospel. Friends, Paul is saying all of this, that the resurrection is a real historical event. The invitation is for everyone to come and to test it. Come and work out what happened with the tomb of Jesus and why Christians claimed it was empty. I became a Christian in 2001. I grew up in a Buddhist home and I converted to following Jesus because of this. Because I couldn't find a viable alternative explanation for why Jesus' tomb was empty. I came to believe that Jesus really was raised from the dead. The resurrection is a real historical event. But, here's the big but for today. What does that matter if you haven't experienced it? What good is an historical event with some, without some impact on your heart? You see, it's, it's one thing to believe the resurrection happened. It's another entirely to be moved by it, to have it impact your life here and now, to have it shape how you live. But before we tease that out, we have to play around with another idea. Right? Everything Paul has written so far is so that you would be convinced that Jesus really did rise from the dead. But then he, he takes a bit of a side tangent and he runs with a hypothetical for a moment. He runs with the hypothetical of what would happen if Jesus was still in the grave? That the resurrection wasn't real. What would happen? Do you have any idea how bad things would be if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? So Paul teases that, that thought in verses 12 to 19, and he comes to three conclusions. I counted this time, there are three conclusions, right? All right? Number one, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, we've got a whole bunch of problems. Number one, first in verse 14, it means that the gospel to our faith, sorry, it means that the gospel and our faith in the gospel is utterly useless. It has no value and be, would be meaningless. Faith in the gospel would be useless because if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then we are essentially trusting a dead man, essentially trusting the word of a dead man. A dead man cannot rescue you from death if death still has a hold over him. And so preaching the gospel and faith in the gospel is pointless. Second, in verse 15, preachers and believers of the gospel would be misrepresenting God. Now, that doesn't sound too bad, 
uh, at first on, on the level of maybe just making a mistake. Doesn't sound that bad, right? Until you actually start to think about it a bit more and tease that thought out. See, it's not just about making a mistake. To misrepresent God, uh, this sort of misrepresentation that we're talking about is really serious. Here's an example. The other day, I was buying some gift cards at Coles, right? Um, they were on sale, so you spend $85 and you get a $100 gift card. That's $15 for free. That's a no-brainer, right? So I was getting a bunch of these gift cards, and when I was at the counter, the lady gave me this little pamphlet. Uh, as I was paying for the cards, this little pamphlet, I was reading it, and it's, it's a warning. It's a warning that some people require you to buy gift cards for them as part of a scam, Right, I'll give you a call and say you owe a debt, so go buy some gift cards from the shops and then post it to us. Right? I thought, wow, I, I've, I've heard about these kinds of scams before, but I'm so glad that now, whenever you buy a gift card, one of these info sheets is given to you. Now, the lady who, who was serving me, she told me that one pamphlet she gave to an older gentleman actually saved him from being scammed out of $3,000. That is evil. How does that happen? Because someone misrepresents some company or government agency, and it can cost someone dearly. Now, if you misrepresent God, that can cost eternally. God has revealed himself in the Old Testament. He's revealed himself through Moses, through the law, through the prophets. To misrepresent God means to move people away from worshipping the true and living God as revealed in the Old Testament and point to a false saviour. It's to move people away from worshipping the true God to worshipping someone who is not true. Someone who, was, who said God raised, we said raised God, God raised him from the dead. But if that never actually happened... To misrepresent God means to put people under judgment and wrath and condemnation. And that is evil. So the first point is that preaching and believing in gospel would be useless. Second point, it would be misrepresenting God to say Jesus rose from the dead if he never did. And the third point in verse 17 is that if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then you are still in your sins. Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sins. But if he remained dead, there would be no way to confirm his substitutionary work. There would be no guarantee. If Jesus remains dead, then death still reigns and we would still be under his, uh, the, the reign of death. So in verse 18, Paul makes the logical point. If Jesus hasn't been raised then those who have died believing in Jesus are goners. There is no hope. So does that mean then that we, you can't just still follow Jesus now? Like if, if he remains dead, can't his teaching in general still offer up something? Well, yeah, kind of maybe. A myth, something that is untrue. Your faith would be pointless and futile. Trying to live for a dead Jesus will mean nothing if at the end of the day he cannot save you. Have we painted a dark enough picture? Paul's thought experiment comes to a crashing end at the end of verse 20. Spiritual death is abolished, utterly destroyed, and the chains of slavery are smashed. Uh, this isn't a verse just about future eternal life, but it also includes life now. 
the life we presently live, a life lived in union with Jesus today, is this life made alive, a life of abundance and joy. I'm going to move to the Gospel of John because I think Jesus explains it real, this idea of what this, this, this change from death to life looks like. It's the same idea that Jesus promises here in the Gospel of John, where he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see it right there at the end. Abundant life. And what does that mean? Let me quote from someone way smarter than me, and then I'll break that down a little bit. Abundant life suggests fat, contented, flourishing sheep, not terrorized by thieves or robbers. It means that the life Jesus' true disciples enjoy is not merely more time to fill, everlasting life, but life at its scarcely imagined best. Life to be lived. Fat. Contented. Flourishing. Not just simply more time, but life at its unimaginable best. Sounds great, doesn't it? A life free from the despair of our sin, of having sin dominate and shade all of our decisions in our lives. A life free uh, from the guilt and burden and shame that sin brings down on us when we fall and stumble. We do not spiral into a pit of despair because Jesus does not look upon us with guilt and shame. We have a life free from being under the shadow of death. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory. The resurrection victory swallows up death. One big gulp and it's gone. And he continues on, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through relationship with Jesus, the creator and the maker and sustainer of all things, because Jesus is alive. You see what Jesus is offering in his resurrection? Abundant life, here and now. Eternal life through forgiveness in him and personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. As he has with his Father, so he has with you. Is that your experience of the resurrection? Have you found this kind of life? Have you enjoyed a deepening relationship with Jesus? When Mantis and Drax look upon the baby Jesus, they are confused. They, they don't know what to make of him. Do you know what to make of him? Or can you, would you stand there with them, maybe just as confused? At Christmas, as we look upon him, we can have this hope. We can have this big hope that Jesus was born, incarnate God, truly man, truly God, died on the cross for our sins, taking the wrath of God in our place. Anyone who trusts him will never face the wrath and anger of God again. 
they will only ever experience his grace and mercy and love. And we have the hope that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's proven that he's defeated death. And that changes lives. Because his resurrection will be our resurrection. His new life will be our new life. He gives it all to us. So, how do you look upon the baby Jesus this, this Christmas? Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. That Jesus not only was sent to die for our sins, but he is raised in glory. He is raised victorious over death and guarantees our, our, the forgiveness of our sins. It gives us new life, gives us relationship with you and relationship with him. So, Father, as we think on why Jesus came, help us to not think of just this, the, the resurrection as merely an historical event that we just need to believe, not merely as the cherry on top of the cake that just solidifies everything, but help us to experience how wonderful and awesome it is that through Jesus and trusting him, we have abundant life, we have relationship with you, and we have hope and certainty. So Father, help us grasp these things, embrace these things, and to live them out for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen.